quite happy to read these scriptures this morning. Our first is actually uh, what I used as the call to worship from Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second is from Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. Actually, verse 16, I'll start. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all of them for my name's sake the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. And our text this morning is once again from 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been studying now for a while this beautiful little letter that Peter wrote to Christians undergoing persecution. Uh, it is believed, uh, has been since the early church that this was written during Nero's persecution. And so this was no light thing. Uh, Nero actually uh, used Christians sometimes as living torches in his garden parties. He would impale them, cover them with pitch to light his parties. And of course, he famously, infamously uh, blamed Christians for the fire in Rome, which it was believed that he had started. Nonetheless, uh, Peter is writing to people facing persecution and will tell them in chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's coming. In other words, it's going to just get worse. And yet we find him in this section that we're looking at, describing what he calls the good life. We looked at it last week. It's a life that does not depend on circumstances, it is not context specific, but it is rather that life that we are to live in Christ in times that we would choose and in times that we would never choose. And uh, we're returning one more time to this same section, the same verses, because as I said last week, I was leaving out verses 15 and 16, we read them but I said we'd return the, to them this Sunday because this, verse 15, is very well known, often quoted. It's the sort of 
of uh, Ur text uh, for the work of apologetics, which is not apologizing, but it's from the Greek word apologia, which is to make a defense. And so for those who defend the faith, verse 15 is so often quoted. But I think it's often quoted out of context and understood out of context. And that's why I wanted to take one Sunday just to address this one thought of how we are to make a defense for the hope that we have. So here, this word again, beginning with verse 13, and I said last week, he starts by saying, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? And these people probably thought, who is there to harm us? Everybody from Nero on down. But we know from what we looked at last week, what he's talking about. We won't repeat that this week. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But, and here we are with our text, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I sometimes read texts like this and uh, find it hard to say thanks be to God when he says, you know, even if you have to suffer for doing good. But we should say thanks be to God. Thank God for those who have a unique calling to the work of apologetics, those whom God has uniquely gifted in the defense of the faith from a philosophical, theological, cultural perspective. And as I will go on to say, all of us who are not baby Christians as we grow should read some things and study some things that make us better prepared, at least in our own hearts, to have answers to the questions that every thoughtful person should ask, questions around the existence of God, questions around the reality of the stories in the New Testament about Jesus Christ, about his resurrection. But what I want to focus on this morning is that for most of us, the call might come a little bit differently. And I hope that I can make clear what, uh, what I believe this text is telling us, because I think all of us should find it very liberating. There are, as I say, people whom God has raised up with a unique gift for giving a philosophical, intellectual defense of the faith. When I was growing up, the sort of main popularizer of that approach was an Oxford Don, later a Cambridge Don, C.S. Lewis, who had come to Christ in 
the midst of life after having been a rather aggressive atheist, then agnostic, and then came to Christ. And in his uh, BBC talks, which later were produced as a book entitled Mere Christianity, he makes a winsome mid-20th century defense of the faith. And it became, for many of us, uh, sort of that, that rock to which we would return when questions arose, whether we were asked them by others or whether they rose in our own hearts. Others went on and, and were moved and stirred a few years later by the writings of uh, uh, some of the people heavily influenced by uh, Dutch theology, people like Francis Schaeffer, who was deeply influenced by Cornelius Van Til. And when I studied philosophy after the Lord got a hold of me, uh, I turned to people like Alvin Plantinga, and the great uh, Dutch, again, the Dutch have been great. Thank you, Paul. Thank those of you, Adam, our, our Dutch people pre present. Uh, they brought us a lot of tremendous uh, theological work in this area. And it can be very helpful uh, in our day for a lot of young reform American and European Christians, the great rock star has been Tim Keller, especially since the New York Times best-selling publication of his work, The Reason for God. All of these things are incredibly helpful. I commend them all to you. But that said, I do simply want to observe that these people uniquely raised up are God's attorneys. Most of us were simply called to be God's witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. And a witness is not an attorney. A witness is called to the stand simply to tell what he or she has experienced. It is to give testimony to what you have seen and heard. And so, with that in mind, I want to look at verse 15 and 16, verses 15 and 16, and try to make four brief points. I'll be merciful. Um, the first three are all from verse 15. The final one is from verse 16. We want to think about how we are to make, if asked, a defense of this hope that we hold deeply and dearly in our hearts, the hope of the gospel being true, the hope of Christ's work in salvation being our rock, the hope of eternal life, not floating around as disembodied spirits in an insubstantial heaven, but rather as resurrected people in a recreated cosmos, which is the promise of Scripture, that's how the Bible ends. The new heavens, the new earth coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem, people raised up from the dead, once again walking this good earth, now free of the brokenness and sin and death that our rebellion against its creator has caused. That's the vision of the Bible, very different from Plato's vision of getting free of all of this and floating around with the logo. The first thing that he reminds us that is too often forgotten, and boy do I confess, I ran from the Lord for a long time. I'd read C.S. Lewis as a kid, 
I'd been, I, I knew his arguments. I'd grown up in a Christian home, but I was the one in the family who was always looking out, wanting to know what was out there, wanting to taste and see everything out there. So when I left home, I ran. You know my story, those of you who've had to hear it before. Got kicked out of Wheaton College, ended up in the military. Bad time in history to be out of school back there in Vietnam. And ran. When the Lord began to draw me back, and I went back and began to read again and to study C.S. Lewis and others, now I was on fire and I was ready to hit anybody over the head with all of the great arguments for the existence of God. And I saw remarkably little fruit. Why? Because a biblical defense of the faith begins in the heart. It begins with a change, with changed affections. And look at how he speaks of this. Verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, our own defense of the faith begins long before anyone asks us. It begins with a new orientation of life, a new set of affections, the problem with the way that the gospel has been so frequently presented within American evangelicalism, it's mostly been a feature of our movement, has been just, you know, while every head is bowed, every eye closed, just slip up that hand and then just, you know, don't ever doubt that you're a Christian now. Even if you continue the way that you've always lived, if you just said, I want whatever you've got, God, I'll believe in Jesus. That's it. And of course, there's nothing like that in the Bible. Jesus said to people, follow me. Leave where you are. Come, follow me. You want to know who I am? You can't get it in a little talk by the side of the road. You can't get it in a little booklet. You want to know me? Come. Spend time with me. Follow me. Listen to me. Ask me your questions. Get to know who I am. And so there is a total transformation that takes place in a biblical view of things. Once I was Lord of my life, I'll never forget years ago when I was in seminary, I was training at First Presbyterian Quincy, and um, the organization Jews for Jesus had just started out. Moshe Rosen, this big strapping fella, had, had come to Christ. And so he was g- going around and witnessing and talking about how, Jew, you know, the religion of Israel in, in the Old Testament fulfilled. And anyway, he was a big strapping guy. But I'll never forget how he started his sermon. First Presbyterian Quincy, Massachusetts had the old uh, hourglass-shaped high pulpit and uh, off on the side. And I'll never forget, he strode up into it and all those Scots sitting out there filling, looking up at him. And he began by saying, I used to be God. 
Well, he had everybody's attention. <laughs> but he was right. That's every one of us seeks to be God of our own life. My own Lord, my own master, I will decide what's right for me. I will determine what I want to do, where I want to go. And the confession of Christians in the New Testament was always Jesus is Lord. Now, we don't ever get that surrender perfect. We sang this morning about, you know, I live totally for him. I want to live. Well, of course we don't. And so we need, even as we sing songs like that, to be saying, Lord, I long to be like this. I long to be someone ready to give it all up and follow you. And I have moments by your grace when I do. But it's amazing how quickly by the time I get to my car, I'm trying to be back in charge of my own life and determine what I want to do and then ask you to bless it. So this is a lifelong project, but it begins in the heart by recognizing that I am no longer God. I am no longer Lord and Master, the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one before whom one day I and all others will stand, is now my Lord. Boy, does it make you humble. Man, does it show you your own brokenness and sin and rebellion. It is the best way to build into a person that deep humility and gratitude for grace that alone is the proper posture to begin telling any other broken sinner the reason for the hope that is in you. It begins in the but it also has to fully engage the mind. He says, make a defense. You need to speak. And when I go back and read apologists, they'll often say, look, we have a classic example of what we're doing in the book of Acts when Paul stood in Athens before the philosophers on Mars Hill and made a very thoughtful connection with an idol that he'd seen to an unknown God, and I'm here to tell you about him, and and they go on and say, this is what we're doing. Well, God bless them. I would argue that that was Paul's most unsuccessful moment in the entire book of Acts. Most of the people listening to him laughed, turned away. A very few people responded. And then we read that he went straight on to Corinth. And when he reflected back in 1 Corinthians on what happened when he first went to Corinth, what does he say? I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I think he was still smarting from what he tried to do. And what do we see Paul doing every time he makes a defense of the faith in the scripture, in, in the book of Acts and in his letters? He tells his story. Here this brilliant master, teacher, and debater who could have laid out a brilliant argument when called to make his defense. Every time he says, if you'd known me then, the story starts when I was a, a man named Saul, a Pharisee, seeking to put the Christians to death, seeking to destroy the church. I was on my way to Damascus with letters to enable me to arrest Christians. 
and I encountered the risen Christ, and he cast me down in the road, and nothing has ever been the same. Transformation of life. What was he doing? Paul, the great apologist, always was Paul the great witness. He was simply telling, let me tell you what God has done for me. Now, why is this so important? Okay, some of you uh, that are really good at apologetics may well want to talk more with me about this. I'd be happy to. And I'm going beyond what Scripture says. I'm simply telling what I think as I reflect on this. So take it with a grain of salt. I told you when I was a kid, I grew up reading C.S. Lewis. I knew all that stuff. I found it compelling in the same way that when I was a child, I found my parents' political views compelling and, you know, other things compelling. And when I became a teenager, I began to question everything they thought. And once I ran from God and wanted to run from God, somebody told me, you need to go back and read C.S. Lewis. I tried to and I thought, why did I ever think this was impressive? There's nothing here. Until God drew me back to himself. And my older brother, who was a professor of surgery, brilliant guy, I talked to him and I said, I wish I had your faith and I'll never forget. He looked at me and said, he saw that God was working. He had refused all conversations because he knew I was on the run, but he saw that God was now drawing me back. And when I said, I wish I had your faith, he said, John, you know, I, I said, I guess I need to make a leap of faith. And he said, leap of faith? You've been reading Kierkegaard again. John, there is better evidence historically for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the life of Julius Caesar. And if you care about your soul, it's time for you to start checking it out. Now, because God was at work in my heart, I went back to those apologetic works, and now they spoke powerfully to me because God, by his spirit, was drawing me. But during all of those years of running, the most impressive thing, I say this to you parents who may have kids or grandkids on the run, I have to remind myself, my parents were earnest Christians. My siblings were earnest Christians, and during those years that I was on the run, they knew that I knew anything they might say. All they ever did was to welcome me home, welcome me to dinner, want to know how I was doing. They loved me well. From the heart, they loved me well. So that in my brokenness, I wanted to be like them. Remind me what it is that we believe, because then God opens your heart. So you may say, look, I, I enjoy reading Tim Keller. I, I enjoy reading others, and there are so many. We can offer you resources. There are great resources, and you should read, read them, and you should have answers. But the most powerful thing that you and I can ever do is with what, as we'll see in a minute, a kind of bold humility, it is to love from the heart that has been transformed and to tell our story of what God has done for us. That's what changes us, and that's what changes others. 
And then there is the place. Then a thoughtful person will say, but you know, there are so many who raise this argument or this, and you say, there are great resources that answer all those questions. But now you're in a place to hear them because you're beginning to follow Jesus. And you can only hear his voice when you're following him. So it begins in the heart. It engages the mind. Thirdly, the last part of verse 15, a gracious apologetic should be are you ready? Gracious. Okay? Now, how does he say it? He says, make a defense, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I just wince to remember some of my first forays at university when I was out of the service and now seeking to follow Jesus and studying. And man, I was ready. It was, you know, throw down a question. I'm dead. There was no graciousness. There was no, let me make sure I understand what you're asking and where you're coming from. And before we do that, I, who, you know, could we go out to lunch? I'd just love to get to know you. Who are you? So a gracious defense of the faith looks at others not as the enemy. It's easy to listen back. They're, they're all passe now, but there was, you know, a few years ago, the, the four horsemen had their moment. Uh, they, they embraced that description. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, uh, the philosopher Dennett, and uh, Harris, Sam Harris, the, the new atheist who never made a single new argument. You read their works, and almost everything they raised was answered by the early church. But you can look at it and say, the wicked enemy. Or you can say, that's exactly where I was. And somebody loved me enough to draw me back. A fellow I met actually in France on a trip who was a Christian said that he had spent long hours driving with Christopher Hitchens, studying the gospel according to John in the Greek. How did you get Hitchens to do this with you? We were friends. I loved him, and he knew it. That's to be our approach, gracious. But finally, it's conducted with confidence. You're gracious, but it doesn't mean you're wimpish. It says in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Why? Because there is this quiet, bold confidence. And that only comes when, go back to the start, when in our hearts we have embraced Christ as Lord. If we realize that he is the Lord, then suddenly this doesn't rest on us. I, I used to think, well, I've got to make the best argument in the world or I'm responsible if they don't respond. No. You can't argue anyone into the kingdom. You can love them into the kingdom. 
And then you can seek with them to explore answers to questions. I think I've told you that, that forgive me if I have, but my dad, uh, built more like my son than like me, dad was, uh, had boxed in school. And, he was, and during the Depression, he w left North Carolina, went up to Chicago to get work. There was no work in the South. And he went to work at the Ford plant, but he started going to Moody. And they were told D.L. Moody never went to bed at night without having witnessed to someone. Did I tell you this story? Uh, sorry. Well, I'll tell you. Um, so one night, Dad, Dad had his collar turned up. If you've ever lived in Chicago during the winter, the wind off Lake Michigan actually has a name. It's called the Hawk. It's just so cold. And so he's in Cicero, where John Dillinger and his gangster guys are going. And he's waiting for the streetcar, and he remembers, oh, I haven't witnessed anybody. Ugh. I've got to talk to somebody about Jesus before I go to bed. So, <laughs> so he looks up, and there, under the streetlight, there's this very well-dressed man in a bowler hat and kind of a frock coat. And he's looking down nervously at Dad, who has his collar turned up and a growth of beard. And Dad would start to walk toward him, and the guy would could try to go further under the light, and Dad would think, I can't do it, and he'd walk back. And finally, he saw the streetcar coming, and he thought, I can't let him, if, if I don't witness to him, he's going to die without Christ, his blood will be on my head. So as the streetcar comes, Dad goes trotting up to the guy and says the only thing he could think of saying to start an evangelistic conversation, Mr., are you prepared to die? <laughs> well, I mean, this guy took off sprinting for the streetcar and just threw himself in, and Dad realized about it. He just went. So, you know, instead of coming to Christ, the guy had a story for his grandkids about the day one of Dillinger's guys off and got him. He had no idea it was one of Moody's guys. But what am I saying? You don't, we don't witness effectively when we're doing it out of guilt or out of this undue burden that if I don't, you know. No. In your heart, embrace Christ as Lord. He's the king. He knows everyone. He loves them more than you and I ever will, including our own kids and grandkids. And all we can do is say, make me sensitive to the moment that someone is open and asking. And until then, grant me a heart of love for this person. And then in that time, did you notice, and I'm done, in that beautiful teaching from Matthew that was our gospel lesson, Jesus said, if you're called in before authorities, don't spend the night nervously trying to prepare what you're going to say. Simply go in, and my Father will tell you what to say. He'll give it to you if you are just there to serve him. Brothers and sisters, what I'm hoping you'll hear is draw a deep breath. The call is always the same. Love the Lord your God. Love one another. Lovingly seek to serve the broken, the lost, those most opposed to you. See them as people created in the image of God, deserving your full attention and your full respect. And speak with grace. Be prepared. But the most powerful thing that you and I can ever offer is our own story of what God has done for us. Father, help us to remember that in those moments when the door is wide open 
May we be people who have over and over rehearsed out of gratitude and in worship our own stories so that we are eager to let others know of your goodness and your grace in making us new in Christ Jesus. Would you take just a moment and respond in your own heart to whatever the Lord may be saying to you through his word.